0: Tom got recommended to me as an expert for scaling. So enjoy. Hi, here's Florian from Latinx Startups, and I'm today here with Tom. So Tom, tell us something about yourself.
1: Hi, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, so my name is Tom Cummings. I'm originally British, but I've ended up here in Berlin for the last eight years. Uh, I started life as a statistician economist, um, did a... First sort of five years of my life working in customer insight first for insurance company and then um, Got the internet bug and joined Betfair a p2p gaming company in the UK and then after that, you know, I Did a master's and I was looking at what was next and um, I was lucky enough to find this amazing new startup called SoundCloud which back in 2010 was still pretty early stage, uh, you know, under a million users at that point um, and was lucky enough to to join the team. Came to Berlin, spent six years there and um, have since moved on to a new project where I am today. So today I am the CMO of Grover, look after all things marketing, product and design here. And we have grown fast from 10 people a year ago to 40 people today we've grown the uh the revenue and the user base by 10x this year um and what we do just to include that as well is to um, provide a fresh alternative to owning things so we offer Flexible monthly subscriptions on all kinds of consumer electronics, whether that's your smartphone your laptop or new weird things like VI headsets or drones You don't have to buy them anymore You can actually just rent them and when you're done with them send them back or upgrade or change to something else Uh, So it's a completely different way of
0: accessing the tech you need in your life Cool, that's pretty cool so it's like the same like a leasing concept for cars. If you lease a car and, and set your owner you just pay a rent and then you give it back. Okay, cool. Exactly. The world is moving to an access first model where people
1: don't want to own things anymore. They don't want to get into debt. They don't want to feel locked down by having, you know, all of these positions, possessions when they could be spending their money on, you know, more fun things, more experiences. Um, and just being smarter about the way we utilize, you know, the, the products that we produce and the impact that has on the environment as well. So yeah, a lot of models are moving to a, a sharing economy or a circular economy, um, and we think the time is right to do that for, for tech
0: products too. So let's, let's go back to the beginning. Like you said, like you're working on customer insights for Betfair, for example. So if you're approaching customer insights, that means like you understand how the user ticks and what the user wants, or how do I need to understand that? Yeah, exactly. This is the sort of for me the fundamental shift that happened you know, literally
1: in my career. I started working in 2003 when I came out of university, and at, at that point, you know, companies were transitioning to. Um, internet models and suddenly that gives you all of this wonderful data about how users are behaving with your product. Um, And so what I originally considered to be a very fluffy topic of marketing suddenly becomes this really rich data-infused function. And so yeah, I spent a lot of time working on trying to understand the user, profiling them. Um, segmentation models, predicting what they're going to do, customer lifetime value, retention models, all of these things where we can just get a better picture of behavior um, and then working really closely with like, the marketing the product and the business teams to then you know, build all of the, the strategies and plans around that.
0: So then you, how you told us you you changed to Cloud, and I think Cloud had like then, 1 million users around, I think. So what, what, what was your fo- first point of focus as you arrived in SoundCloud? So, how did you first apply to um, enable growth for them?
1: Yeah, it's a long time ago. It's eight years ago now. It's a, the world has changed a lot. But I think the first thing to recognize at a, a company like SoundCloud, they had this amazing community. You know there were people who loved the product and were using it naturally, organically within their own micro communities as well. Um, so this was not a product where you had to do a lot to kind of spread the word. The key things for us were how do we educate people on you know the concept and then also on the product and what you can actually then do with it, um, but. And that's the core. And then after that was how do we help make the sharing process and the community that works around it as frictionless as possible? So we spent a lot of time working on um, you know defining, refining, and communicating the, the value proposition. Um, Building that across all of our different platforms um, and then working with our business development teams who would speak directly to the to the artists and the creators and community teams and customer support teams who would be speaking one-on-one with our users um, To make sure that we could help build a really clear Understanding at the root of what SoundCloud is how people use it what that kind of magic Factor is so then we could recommunicate that to people at the top of the dev
0: funnel So so you try to figure it out with together with the user what the value proposition was and then you just Build it like that or you define it first and then you transport it to the users I think
1: understanding your value proposition has to come from a lot of different angles okay. um, so part of it is understanding from users how they perceive your product today Um, you know simple things like user testing can help with that just to get valuable input customer interviews um, focus groups etc and that gives that gave us the insight that we didn't necessarily have from an inside perspective but then at the same time community value proposition is also about creating this path for the user about um, the fundamental purpose of what you're trying to do as a company um, and helping to take them on a journey of that understanding as well. So that needs to sort of look at what is the, the communications roadmap, what is the strategy of the company, where is it going to go in three years time like, and SoundCloud had a very great you know, business of creators who were sharing sounds and you know, creating communities around that But we always wanted to be the kind of audio infrastructure of the web, like powering all forms of um, audio communication, whether that's music or podcasts or speech or whatever. Um, So we had to understand how to communicate that as well. And that meant, you know, changing some positioning, working on how we communicate at the various key touch points in the user journey.
0: So you, you, like, because. Like if you told me the story and told me the story tell me the story like that, I would probably think about it to just more concentrate on the community factor there and like go more this direction than to stay on my path and say I will be the one source for audio in the internet. Um so what was your conclusion? You educated the community that like and helped them to bring better quality to their sound and like helped them to better broadcast it, or did you more focus on the community itself and their community building I think the, there's two key learnings there, one was
1: um, sort of step by step focus, so we didn't try and tackle uh, you know, the entirety of every kind of audio use case that you can have, we you know, had a strong early base in electronic music then we branched into you know, rock and then later into hip hop and rap and and then we had a very strong focus on um, podcasting at one point. So it was sort of taking a, a use case by use case mm-hmm. um, and then really attacking that from multiple different angles. Um, so that was one key learning. And then I think the other one was you know, just communicating in a relevant way to the user. You know, we were dealing with millions of users, and it's very hard to, to do that. Relevantly, unless you're segmenting effectively, unless you're looking at you know the specific use case and touch point in the customer journey, and so we spent a lot of time looking you know how do we communicate effectively on the on the page on the landing page? What is it? What do we need to say in this particular email touch point? And so it was really like going through with a fine tooth comb like every touch point and applying the relevant user communication at that point, and doing it underpinned by you know, data to see what actually works, what actually sticks, and
0: what creates engagement. So, I think you, you grow SoundCloud like from 1 million to, I think, 15 million users. It was like a really big number. So, how, how did it feel, this growth? Was it just a rush? Or if you're looking back, how you would describe it? It was, I would describe it as,
1: um, a roller coaster because you know you're changing things all the time. You don't know what's going to have an impact. Um, suddenly you latch onto something that has a big um, uptick in in growth, and these things are quite unpredictable in a way. Um, so it was a journey, and going on that journey meant being super flexible and fluid, m- ripping up plans if they weren't going to work. Uh, it's fun. I think the the challenge on the scaling side is one thing is on the user base network of the, the the company, but the second is organizationally. Um, what do we have to do to support that growth internally? What it meant for team, culture,
0: organisation? So That's also a really interesting topic. So before we go into that, do you remember which were like the one or two biggest points which enabled the most growth in SoundCloud?
1: Yeah, there's uh, probably three major factors, I would say. One was the um, focus on individual um, communities and use cases first up. So that enabled us to sort of do this... um, Layering effect of hitting one community and then growing and expanding from there. Um, The second was mobile So, you know, we built our mobile apps around 2011 or so and this was the golden age of uh, Of the app stores and we focused really hard on app store optimization and figuring out how we um, You know crack the rankings and we did some very Interesting, cool, innovative stuff at that point, so we were able to really you know, push the growth um, quite fast. Um, and there was a third point that slipped my mind, but I'm sure I'll come back to it. We can come back it. Make it.
0: <laughs> and you said also the really important point that like, um, you need to mirror the growth from the users inside with structures, so how, how was your approach there? Yeah, this is something where we probably made a lot of mistakes and learned a
1: lot. Um, You know, I started off as the first marketing person on board at SoundCloud, um, and then we started, you know, building a couple of different teams around brand communications, around insight, around product marketing. And we realized at one point that um, nobody truly owned growth. So everything that was around user acquisition, retention, engagement um, kind of fell somewhere between the product team and the marketing team. And and if it's not owned, then nobody's doing anything about it. So probably the biggest organizational learning was how do we set up a a growth team to to deal with that. Uh, So we took a, you know, PMs, engineers, designers uh, marketing people formed the first growth team at SoundCloud um, and tried to start with a laser focus on a couple of these um, acquisition or retention levers to see uh, what we could actually do when we had a dedicated team on that and the results were really strong um, and so the The opportunities kept on coming but then the question for us was how do we actually make this work organizationally because at that point the growth team itself was a little bit of a siloed experiment and we needed to find a way to more intelligently uh, integrate it into the rest of the things that we were doing primarily on the the product level because any company is constrained with engineering and product resources Um, so we the, the team itself morphed and grew and shrank and changed and had different foci and um, until we found like a comfortable home for it, um, you know, within the product organization um, and supported by effective, you know, marketing
0: people. So, so what was the solution again? So, like you had the growth team and then how you were thinking? Okay, the team probably focused on user growth, I would guess. So and then, how 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 did you put that on the whole organisation?
1: Yeah, it was really hard um, because of a, a resource issue, and but also sort of a mindset issue. So part of the things that we had to do was a lot of internal influencing and you know relationship building, just to reinforce the value of certain things that we're doing. You know, even something as trivial as putting a tracking implementation into mobile clients so that we knew where our traffic was coming from and could, you know, customize the, the flows accordingly. That would take us months to get through a, a product roadmap because it's not as sexy as launching the next big product. Um, so we had to educate the and influence a lot, um, help to build clarity and visibility around the metrics that we were measuring and that the company cared about, um, and showing how that was relevant, how it all fit together to the flow of the business. So, if our ultimate goal was to drive um, growth in listening time, then you know there is a factor in that driver tree somewhere early on, which is. How effective are we at getting people to that activation moment in their in their user flow? Um, so that was a really interesting challenge of how to actually, you know, organizationally set something up. Uh, you know, I think we did some good stuff and there's a lot of things we can learn. Um, I would look to have more like a cross-functional engagement um, and and a team that has, is a little bit more, um, has a little bit more autonomy. I think you know, often when you get into bigger organizations, the trouble you, you have is that companies don't enable teams to operate as fast as they used to when they were in startup mode. And When you're a growth team, you need to work fast. You need to be able to launch experiments every single day And we were sometimes hampered by that, but this is part of the growing pains, and eventually we got it to a point where people understood the value of growth, people understood how the metrics all fit together, the relationships were built, and we could operate on a faster basis.
0: So you you explained... Uh, to the teams better like the, the value chain how you said and to understand better where the matrix are if you want to reach certain goals and then um they redid it probably if um, the goals change it. Um so if you would need to do it again, how how you would approach it now? I would first of all it needs
1: um, executive approval and someone to drive it and, and own it from the top down. Like if it's an experiment or if it's a test from the the bottom up, it's it's hard to get the buy-in and resources in a fast-moving. Team company that is always trying to do lots of things, so it needs to have um, support from the top to make it to make it work. It needs to be well resourced, but you know not overly resourced. It needs to be lean but able to uh, implement and move fast. Um, I would make sure that um, you have engineers, like, particularly engineers, but this applies to everyone who understand and love operating with metrics, mm-hmm. you know, everyone in that team needs to be aligned and, and creative about the tests that can be run, um, and how we can most quickly get to results that uh, can be significant and that can be iterated upon and optimized. And That's part of the culture. And if you know any single person in that team doesn't get the way you work around, um, iterative improvement, um, based on being data-driven, then the whole thing falls apart. So that, those are a couple of things that I think are really important for setting up a, a team effectively for growth.
0: So would you implement that in the whole company on all sections or would you again do like a team that are meant exactly for that? I think it
1: depends on the company. So some companies have sort of cross-functional growth teams that can go into any part of the organization, whether that's, you know, sort of product flow or a sales department and look at um, process improvement. Um, I think for most digital products then it's uh, more a matter of how you understand the user flow through the point of acquisition, activation, retention um, and uh, referral. Um, so that tends to be kind of a
0: product and marketing intersection. So let's say we we like we founded a startup. We are like two people, and we sell shoes for hipster, like shoes with an oversized for hipsters. And like I don't know, we make like I don't know ten shoes sales per week. We sell ten shoes. So how would you approach the whole thing if you come new to the team and like the team is kind of a mess, like they don't have a restructure, really just kind of started and then all, of the work, all over the place and then kind of made it run so how you would if you come as a new member in how you would approach the whole situation mm-hmm. um,
1: yeah I think there's a top down and bottom up analysis to be done there. like first of all what's working how are you getting those 10 sales? Where are they coming from? What do the customers um, appreciate in the product? Why are they choosing to buy? What do they understand as the value proposition? And, and where are there more of those people that you can go out and, and acquire? Um, so that's the first place to start. And then from a top-down perspective, looking you know, at, the, at the market, figuring out where do you fit into it and appropriately commun- communicating your you know unique selling points um, and I think in that example you know, building a growth team is pointless Like, first off you need just one person who can truly understand what's going on in the business, someone who's creative and analytical who can um, test new things on their own independently and move fast and then once you've cracked it, like once you understand what some of those levers are then you can start building and resourcing a team around growth. Like growth teams aren't to figure out how you scale. Growth teams are to enable you to do so. Um, I think if you look at like someone like Sean Ellis' um, product marketing framework, you have like um, the value proposition work, and then you have scaling. Um, and then only after that comes the point where you've kind of Made it. And so if you
0: don't have the groundwork done, you can't do the scaling effectively. Okay, cool. So we do the groundwork and we figured out that, like, um, that most of the tall people are hipster like and they like this kind of special shoes with sandals, I don't know. And this is the market fit, which drives the whole thing, and because they like it to have wind around around their feet. So that's like that's like what we figured out. So we know, okay, this is like probably the opportunity. Then this is the solution, the market fit, the value the proposition. So how you would set up then the the growth the growth team or like how we'd enable them the grow from there?
1: Um, yeah, I don't know.
0: I need to, I need to brush up on my uh, industry knowledge of the hipster shoe market, but. We can market also as like a solution for measuring shoes and this is now stuff as a service. Okay. We've just pivoted. Yeah, we just pivoted. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I would start by looking at like the different channels that we're acquiring customers on and testing what's work and doing really low, um, low budget ghetto testing on different channels, um, to see where like, is their volume? Is their demand? I mean, that's there's traditional pay channels which we didn't use so much at SoundCloud, but we utilise um, quite a bit here at Grover. Um, and if you have a business model that has a clear customer lifetime value, then you know what you can spend to acquire customers. Um, and if not then it's the question of how do you drive it organically so maybe we need to do some kind of community events to build like an a, a group of people who love hipster shoes um and that's our viral kernel of truth that takes um that grows from that
0: so and uh was was the growth on SoundCloud more organically? So like it was bit by bit and like, okay, it was streamlined or was it more explosive? So you tackled the one thing, it didn't work at all and then you tackled the next thing and suddenly there was one thing which user explodes. Uh, no, I would s- If you look
1: at SoundCloud's growth chart, particularly for sort of the three, four years... Um, around 2010 to 2014 it looks like one of those cliched hockey stick Silicon yeah. Valley growth charts um, so there was no point where we kind of stepped it up and suddenly we've got 10x the number of customers coming through it was really adding an, an exponential growth path on there which was about layering in all of these different um, angles of, of growth and the different things that we were doing for the through the customer journey, um, but also like the power of the product itself, like the base product of SoundCloud was amazing and still is amazing. Um, And so as long as we kept communicating effectively what it was and reducing the friction on the the sharing, then our users were doing our marketing for us. Yeah,
0: Yeah, that's a good point. And uh, so because if you have like such a strong growth like in SunCloud, you probably need to hire new people to be able to handle that. Um, what was what was your strategic strategy and the hiring process? What were your focuses on that specifically for growth-oriented people? Yeah, for example.
1: Yeah, because uh, I mean, I think one of the biggest things we had to hire f- um, over cr- the entire company was um, you know engineering talent to help keep the, the entire ship afloat, um, but specifically on the growth side what I looked for was people who are, have this like right balance of creativity and analytical like people who are not There's a I think phrase that uh, Mark Andreessen uses, which is um, strong opinions weakly held Yeah and I think that's perfect for growth because you need to have people who have like, creative um, ideas, know where they think they can drive growth from, but are willing to put experiments in place um, to prove or disprove their own opinions as fast as possible. So that's one key thing. I think the second is that sort of team players I mean, A, because the growth team itself needs to be working very effectively as a unit um, because you're working on this one single goal, but also in the wider part of the organization because this is often known sort of a cross-functionally cutting role, they need to be able to you know, build those relationships with engineers working on a specific product that they want to implement a, a test on, or the marketing communications team, because how you want to you know, take 10 different um, taglines and, and test them for conversion, right? Um, so they need to be strong in um, relationship building. And, uh, and then I think, you know, curious strategic minds. There's one thing which is managing the day-to-day growth of experiment-driven testing, but the other thing is where are these big long-term opportunities going to come from?
0: So how do you balance that, like how you balance the daily daily business of growth and the like the chances to experiment, to do expe- like bigger experiments which are not m- included in the daily daily stuff.
1: The key is to have a strong experiment, experimentation framework in place that allows a funnel of ideas to just be continually processed. Once you have that, then making time to, sp- to spend on the, the bigger ideas is is going to happen because the, the process is running by itself and then the key thing is how do you break down those big ideas into testable ideas and get them into the flow.
0: So you had like uh, a chart where like you collected all your ideas or in Google Docs or did it just always get new generated if you were sitting together in a room? Yeah, we, we had
1: Google Spreadsheets I think with lists and lists of ideas we tried to use the, um, the ICE framework to prioritize, so measuring the impact, the effort, and the confidence we have of those um, to give us a sense of where we should focus. Um, we would generate new ideas weekly, daily in the course of doing business, but also make sure we took time every few months to sit out away from the office and with a bit more
0: objective lens, look at how we can improve. So, uh, can you go back to the matrix, which helps you decide on which idea focuses first? Yeah, sure. So, um, simple example is let's take
1: our hipster shoe business. So, um, uh, maybe one idea we have is that we can improve conversion rate on the landing page by you know changing whatever creative. Um, And so we think, okay, we'll do the maths and say the impact back of the envelope calculation we think can be um, an extra 10% on revenue. Our confidence level on it is maybe 40% because we have a gut feeling that there is something there, but we don't know if it's the right one. And the effort to do it is maybe three man days, person days, to do the work. And so with that, you then work out uh, sort of a score by multiplying the factors up and compare it with a second idea, which might be, okay, well, instead of looking at conversion rate, we'll look at, at the top of the funnel, can we, um, can we acquire customers at X Euro CPC, um, and what does that mean in terms of the consequential revenue? So, we would build a list of ideas, try and break them down to as granular as possible so they can really be, um, you know, measured in isolation and then work out the impact we think we can have with them, the confidence we have in that impact and the effort, which is across the team, engineering, product design, and marketing, um, and then use that calculator score to give you a sense of prioritization. And it's not that that is then sort of your rule and you then just run through top to bottom without stopping, but I think that's a you need a common sense lens but it's a very useful tool to help you
0: challenge some of your assumptions about impact and yeah that, that's pretty cool so um so you just, just you just do this like for example in soundcloud you did it like the whole five or six years you worked there you just always went through the cycle and like go on with the cycle go on with the cycle and just let the cycle effect happen itself?
1: No, absolutely not. Like this is one of the learnings that we we implemented this a few years later and um, it worked in certain contexts and it didn't work in other contexts. So I think that's one of my learnings is implementing it, sticking to it, educating people around it. Um, And we're starting to do that a little bit more here at Grover now with our Subscription team um, and with our performance marketing team and I want to take very seriously like the groundwork that needs to be done to make sure that like when you implement a framework, any framework is only as good as how much you stick to it um, and how much um, value you get from it, and so that 's kind of the hard work, at least f- particularly from a leadership perspective, is making sure that the the framework is something that is
0: valuable and continues to be used so where where does it work and where it doesn't it, where it doesn't work so where where, did, where this framework of like contest, con, consistently testing doesn't work where's the limit of the system
1: I think it doesn't work in environments where it's either hard to get strong estimates on any of those factors so you're like it's a garbage in garbage out model if you can't do any good estimate estimation then it's not worth um, using it Um, but also one that you can have a quick pace of turnaround like if the projects in the list take three months to do then you're not
0: going to build a culture of um, fast rapid optimizations So is there a certain point in the size of the company where it stops working because you're not flexible enough, you can't do changes fast enough? I don't think so, because it's less the size of the company and more the size of the teams that are operating on it. Okay. So, okay, so... um, You know, I haven't worked in a... 20,000-person company and tested that theory, so who knows. How how big was was SoundCloud? What was the biggest uh, size of SoundCloud to people you you used the system in? I mean, we were working with a relatively
1: small growth team. We were about seven or eight people, I think. Um, And there it worked. And now, you know, the growth team
0: is is bigger. um, And I don't know which framework they use, but... (laughs) So you had your own engineers, right? You had your own developers, which helped you to implement if you needed certain tracking stuff there. Or you went ST like, or you went to the developer team, and told them, okay, we need to have this tracking system in in place here. Yeah, so it was kind of a cross-functional matrix
1: type organization, which meant um, there wasn't line reporting, but we had dedicated engineering support, um, and those guys had. Um, Full stack capabilities to um, to work on the on the core product, but then obviously you know there was many things. Tracking is a great example where you know that's not
0: something that we could implement core within the growth team. You have to go off and work with the other engineering teams on. And you got like from the um, from the management team the priority on your side, so that you can go there and say, okay, we need that how fast we can do this and they say you can get it in three months because we have so many other stuff to do. Yeah, it was always a negotiation. Okay. It depended
1: on the negotiation skills of of me and my team, um, how important growth was at any particular time in the business Um, and then at the end of the day it's also a relationship business so, you know, there's certain, uh, certain people that we could uh, rely on to sneak our stuff through
0: the edges um, and other places where it was a little harder to get things done I know the story there's a story of Google where they put on one point they put like their own currency in to like get like certain priorities and stuff so they had like gave out like their own bills like it was such a bin bills and then like they started to exchange themselves and stuff so okay I give you two if you do this for this and this for me mm-hmm. so like yeah okay it reminded me a bit on that yeah the, um, maybe a, a,
1: an incentivized internal network of prioritization yeah. could be a, <laughs> a new
0: way to do prioritization across the entire company so cool so you with your, with your actual company you like uh, were able to, uh, to generate a 10 time growth which is like really big so what was the key factor there what make you make you what made this possible
1: yeah, so we, we've we grown quite a bit in the last year. And I think uh, there's a couple of factors in there. One is, in contrast to SoundCloud, we are powered a lot by um, online marketing, paid marketing, because we have a clear revenue model. We know what our... Customers are worth and so we know how much we can go out and afford to spend on them so a lot of the last year has been about building scalable acquisition channels across you know traditional things like search and social and um, we're now starting to go into content and video and and all of that Um, uh, but the same kind of rules apply around um, experiment driven um, development there you can do a hell of a lot of testing in um, in ad products so that's one piece. Um, the second is we have a partner network at Grover. So we actually allow retailers to integrate our what we call our Rent with Grover button which means that uh, on any product page for that retailer, a customer can not just buy it but they can also check it out with Grover and, and rent the product instead. So that is obviously kind of a multiplier effect for our business and we have integrations with MediaMarkt and Conrad and even offline stores um, such as Gravis and Neuronics, which have been big growth drivers. And then I think the other key thing has been about you know, developing our um, subscription and retention strategy. So we have a product that people love. Everyone needs technology. When you rent something, you get to use the product, you get to know whether or not you like it. And so there's lots of opportunities for us to um, retain users, um, expand their subscriptions and, and upsell them into, into new things. And so we've uh, developed quite a bit in the... Um, in the levers and the touch points to drive long-term retention, whether that's email marketing, a mobile app, which we're building at the moment, um, or just generally a stronger communication of the value that people can get out
0: of the products as well. So that's another interesting question that comes out of there. So, like, it's out of my experience, it's really hard to get like contracts with big players like Saturn or Markt or like Conrad. So, how were you able to, to make that? Did you have like already contacts in there or to them, or did you build them from, from the sketch go? What was your approach there?
1: Yeah, so we have a, a business development team that is uh, incredibly good at, at hustling and, and um, doing what they need to do uh, in that world. And I think the first thing is you have to accept long sales cycles. So it took us from point of first conversation with some of these guys. 9 to 12 months before we have an integration in place whether that cycle time is coming down now as we start to prove the value Um, and the integration itself is super straightforward Um, and I guess to get our foot in the door has been using our network whether that's um, specifically a retail network or using our investor contacts, just getting that foot in the door um, being um, relentless in terms of what we can do, how we can work together, staying on top of those teams at the other side, because you know we 're not the most important thing yeah. to any of those companies, um, and you know, they in they themselves are not the most important thing to us, but they are very important partnerships yeah. we want to prove the value of them, so we you know we push and we make sure that we 're on top of them. Um, and I think eventually, when we were able to show the value of what we can bring to their business, um, then the integrations themselves um, are easy, and
0: the results speak for themselves. So, how did you do this? Like because it's like also a big challenge. Because what happens if a startup is not the highest priority on another company side, which is most of the time like that? So, how you how you stay in that focus? What is the trick there? Yeah, I think
1: you have to do another podcast with Stefan, our head of business development. But um, I think the key is literally being as visible as possible. So those guys are on the phone or in the inbox of our clients all the time. We're sending performance updates um, all the time. We go down and we spend FaceTime with their teams. And, you know, it's a very um, kind of, Resource intensive process to make sure that they see that we're on the top of our game and we're pushing forward the partnership as much as possible Cool, so what are, what are your biggest challenges today? Our biggest challenge today is You know, we've grown 10x in the last year And so the question for us is where does that next 10x come from and where does the 10x come from after that? Um, So we're looking at how can we evolve our our model, um, understanding what's been the driver of growth over the last year, but also what's held us back from growing even even faster. Uh, Looking at international markets, today we're 99% focused on Germany, but um, this is a model that is completely applicable in many many markets around the world so how can we move fast to get into um, into new markets and uh, then from the internal perspective like we've grown from 10 people to, to 40 and you know sort of 50 to 70 people is one of those breaking points in a business where you have to establish like the ways of working, the culture um, what kind of organizational structure you want to, to use, how, how is your Um, management team work together to get stuff done because it's not like hustling like a small startup anymore you're starting to build a a real business so
0: I think those are some of our challenges for scaling so uh, how did you approach the, the growth from a 10 team to a 50 team so what was how you would describe it structure wise so I mean when it was 10 people it was just 10 people
1: Hanging out together and getting stuff done, um, and leadership um, and direction came from the top, and it was executed. And you know, now with 40 people and growing even further, the important thing has been to uh, increase capabilities at every level. So we brought in more senior people who can help to you know provide a bit more structure and direction and, and ownership. That you know when. As a single founder, and um, even when I joined, sort of the second executive on the team, um, we need to decentralise and, and um, create an organisation that is able to move fast without any one or two bottlenecks in the process. So, bringing in um, more people to help us to to do that, and um, bringing in, you know. Bringing in, but also bringing up the level of expertise within the team. So there's people here who are amazing who've been here for a few years and have taken on a bunch of different roles and are growing and are learning and contributing all the time. Um, And so finding out ways in which we can empower those people to get more done. And I think that's the key challenge: is like what what is the what is the way to build the organisation that can retain the startup speed um, whilst doing more things with a more complex organisation, where some processes need to be in place to
0: ensure that you have sort of a smoothness of operations. So your approach is to hire senior people and then like build small kind of startup teams in each in each um, in each department.
1: Um, I think just hiring great people. I think, you know, a great person can have 20 years experience, a great person can have two years experience. I don't care as long as they um, can take a project and run with it. It's like entrepreneurial values um, are more important than any specific experience. You know, obviously, when we try and tool up the team, There are certain functional areas, so if we need to go and start doing um, video marketing, for example, then maybe we need to find someone who's done that before, um, because it's going to take us too long to to train ourselves internally, Um, but the structure doesn't need to define the way that we work, it's more the culture and the values that define the way that we work.
0: So, how you would describe your your culture and values you have internally here? Yeah, we
1: have a, a get shit done approach. Um, so, people who um, people who kind of take projects, take opportunities by the scruff of the neck, and go and lead them and drive them to completion. That's really more important. That's you know what it takes to be successful entrepreneurially. Um, but without trampling over other people or other organizations or other teams' priorities. So the culture is one where we, you know, debate each other pretty openly. Um, We're not afraid of figuring out, like getting everyone's opinions in the room and then making sure that we gather all of the info and then try and make a decision and... You know, even if people don't all agree to it, commit to it, move on, implement it, learn from it, and then move on to the to the next thing, um, we we I think we value people who have kind of a fluid mindset who can deal with change very well um, because the business changes every six months. Um, that's you know functionally, but also. Uh, in terms of, like, the strategy can move and change. Um, So fluid people with an entrepreneurial attitude who
0: can work well with other people, I think that's the the key for our team. So if you mean, like, you get, like, opinions all in the room, does it mean, like, you get all 40, 50 people in one room to make important decisions? No,
1: that would be insane.
0: Uh, But like, how you make sure that like, people know what's going on on the other side? Because like, that's probably the biggest problem. If you're like, say, you want to have people which get shit done and do the stuff you need to do, it's kind of important that they know what's going on on the other side so that they don't do work double or don't interfere in certain stuff. Yeah, I mean, transparency of information is important.
1: I think we're sort of putting a few things in place and we haven't quite cracked it yet. But, um, you know, we do daily stand-ups, we do weekly team meetings and we have reports coming out of each team and, uh, you know, we have team meetings that people can go and sit in and we have boards up on the walls. So we're trying to build some of these kind of pillars of information transparency that help that. But then distinguishing that from decision making where, you know, if you have more than five or six people in a room trying to make a decision, it's not going to be effective. So there what we try and do is create smaller groups of people who need to be involved. Um, and then there's an, you know, an element of, of, of trust as well that comes in there that, you know, the people that are making the decisions are the right people to make the decision. And uh, if they make the, the wrong decisions, then we learn from it and we move on and we do something else. Um, So distinguishing between decision-making and information sharing is key. And then I think, you know, we're a small team, we're 40 people, anyone can go and talk to anyone else. CEO or myself um, will go and speak to any person in the organization and hear their opinion and vice versa. Um, So we can kind of
0: embrace a lot of different ideas from a lot of different perspectives. Cool, that's pretty amazing. So um, last, qu- like maybe the last question: um, What do you do to invest in yourself? Like how you educate yourself? Well, let's stick with the investment. It can be anything.
1: Yeah, I think the honestly the way I invest in myself most is to uh, make sure I have a good balance between work and life. Like I found. But if I'm spending 80, 90 hours a week working, then I'm not effective, I'm not creative, I'm not empathetic. And these are things that I need to be, you know, to, to do my job well. So I try and manage a healthy relationship between the time I spend here in the office and the time I spend at home with friends and family um and you know basically things like exercise and meditation and reading and all of these things that help and inspire me help me bring that creativity back to work and i think that's something that often gets lost in our crazy startup world where it's all about work work work, disruption, everything and it's all nonsense if you're not grounded and happy and healthy in your own body and mind
0: uh, that's pretty good. So, if you could give uh, advice to your 20, 20 year old self, you could go back and like tell him something. What do you would tell him? Um, apart from invest in Bitcoin, <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: I think you know. To that point, I mentioned earlier, the most important thing for me in terms of my career has been figuring out where my skills lie, who I am, not being driven by other people and what other people think and want and need, um, and then taking my strengths and my skills and my niche and pushing it. And so um, as a 20 year old, you know, I kind of took whatever, the first job offer that I had out of university, I took it Um, and I learned a lot of things there but I maybe could have spent a bit more time figuring out exactly what I wanted to do um, and being comfortable in making maybe weird, tough decisions, um, embracing internal conflict a bit more rather than just going with the flow. Um, And that's something that now I've gone through. As a 30-year-old, I figured it out. And um, that helped me a lot in all of the questions that we've talked about, of how to be an effective leader on anything, growth,
0: whether it's functional or organizational, um, is being a good person. That's a pretty cool answer. And the last question, like, um, if you can recommend a book, which book you would recommend? Um, yeah, to that
1: exact point, I would recommend Quiet by Susan kane okay. It's a book about... Um, introverts and how they fit into our extrovert-oriented world. Uh, A lot of the sort of business, society, political spectrum, even education is built around being extroverted. And I I think especially in the startup world, there's a lot of type A, um, you know, machoism and, you know, there's space for people with different diversity perspectives um you know you know gender and age and um racial equality and diversity are all critically important one of the things that helped me was um appreciating that you know on the introvert extrovert spectrum it's okay to to sit on the other side to, to most other people so i really recommend that book
0: cool thank you very much so do you have anything else you want to want to say no, go forth and make great companies and make them grow. Thank you very much. So thanks for listening and uh, until next time. Thanks for listening. To get the show notes, just subscribe and feel free to leave comments. Until next time.